John chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. Um, I'm excited about it. You know, last week we talked about, uh, man, last week was intense. Uh, if you were here last week, uh, that, that one I'm still really churning over. And I think what has really captured me is the thought of how expensive uh, the blood of Jesus was. You know, uh, Hebrews compares um, the blood to, uh, it says it's not like perishable things, like gold and silver. It's, he's talking about our redemption. He says, you weren't redeemed with, with perishable things like gold and silver. Um, you, were, you were redeemed by the very precious blood of the lamb. And when you realize the expense, the cost of the blood, of what was poured out for you and for me, uh, it, is, it is an overwhelming, overwhelming thought. And you, I think if you don't realize the expense of the blood, you don't realize the enormity of grace and truly what grace is. Because uh, it, it wasn't a cheap thing that was given to us that we didn't deserve. You know what I mean? Because we talk about grace as being this unmerited favor, right? Well, imagine the favor that is given that we didn't deserve uh, that brought the expensive gift of the blood of Jesus, right? I mean, it wasn't just like, a cheap token, you know what I mean? It was, it was the most expensive thing that has ever existed, the life of the Son of God. And uh, that is an overwhelming thought. And so, uh, anyway, I'm just, it's got me emotional. I just can't, I don't know if it's lack of sleep, but man, I just, I have wept a lot this week just thinking about how expensive uh, my salvation was and uh, how often I just, I, I uh, move past it, you know, I forget about it a lot. And that's just not okay. So uh, I want to continue to kind of focus, uh, obviously, on the cross with Easter coming up. Um, and then in the next couple of weeks, I don't think I'm going to start it next week because uh, a lot of folks are going to be gone because it's the end of spring break. But I want to teach the Passover. So that'll probably be two weeks, uh, two weeks away. We're going to go through Passover, which is an awesome, awesome study. But I want to spend a little more time uh, on the cross this morning in maybe a little bit different way than... Uh, than normal. Um, so we're in John chapter 3, uh, and let's just, uh, let's pray and ask the Lord to, to show us truth. So God, we welcome you here. Uh, Holy Spirit, we need you to speak. Um, I, I'm just in a strange place, Lord. I, I, I am adoring the cross. And God, I just pray that we would not move quickly past it, but that we would recognize the power of what you've done. We say on our behalf, and yes, we participate in it, but what you've done on our behalf for your glory. The reality is, God, that we, we are standing redeemed that we might show your glory. Uh, and that is an even more <laughs> overwhelming thought than even our redemption. So we thank you for it. We pray that we would absorb what we need to absorb this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we, this isn't going to be very long. I want to see a few things. We're going to watch a video that I think is cool um, that, that really shows uh, some parts of what I'm going to talk about. But, uh, so you're in John chapter 3. Now, now this conversation, uh, it's a cool conversation. This is one of my favorite conversations that Jesus has with somebody. And uh, he, he's speaking to uh, Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, and this is a conversation that Jesus has with, uh, with Nicodemus about new birth. You guys remember this conversation where uh, Nicodemus is questioning uh, salvation, and, uh, and he says, uh, Jesus tells him that you've got to be born again. Well, it, this kind of, 
this fries his brain a little bit because he, he asked Jesus, he says, does, does that mean that I have to get back in my mother's womb? I mean, how is that going to happen? How do, I, how do I get born again? And, um, and Jesus, says, Jesus talks to him then about kingdom things. In verse 5, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. See, to, in, to be in the kingdom of God, there has to be a kingdom birth. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. And Jesus is explaining this paradox to Nicodemus. And he's trying to, I, I love this picture because Nicodemus is trying to understand things of the kingdom with a rational mind, right? He's trying to, he's trying to fit his brain around this new birth. And Jesus is saying, listen, uh, it's not, you can't fit it in, in your rational. This is a thing of the kingdom. Uh, and, and it's just further proof. I've taught this before, and, uh, but it's just further proof to me that um, that the, the paradox of the kingdom can only be understood in salvation. Uh, if, if we try to, absent the Spirit of God, if we try to understand the Sermon on the Mount, if we try to understand the, the parables that Jesus teaches, if we try to understand the lifestyle of the kingdom from a rational perspective, it is always going to fry our brains because our mind can't wrap itself around the reality of the kingdom. And so many times as believers, we try to do that very thing. We try, to, we try to live a rational Christian life. Well, let me just tell you that those two things, rational and Christian life, don't go together. There's no such thing as a rational Christian life. The only possibility uh, for a Christian life to be the Christian life it's designed to be is for it to be a supernatural one, one born in the kingdom. And it is going to look opposite of the way that life looks on the earth. And Jesus spends lots of time trying to say, listen, you've got to renew your minds to the truth of the kingdom. You've got to understand this in the kingdom, not based on your understanding. So I love this conversation. Um, and he speaks, uh, he speaks intently to Nicodemus. And uh, Nicodemus is having, having a tough time. So, uh, but anyway, we're going to pick this up about halfway through this conversation in verse 9. And it says, Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said, are you uh, the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Uh, and it seems like a sarcastic question. Jesus isn't being sarcastic here, but uh, Nicodemus being a Pharisee would have studied the law. And guess who the law is about? Jesus, right? So basically he's saying, you know, in other scriptures it says the prophets have searched uh, the heart of God. They have searched the scriptures to know the very things that we're living in. Uh, and it's the reality, what Jesus is talking about is that this whole book is about him. All of the law, all of the tabernacle, all of the temple, everything that God's ever, ever said and done on behalf of his people has been speaking about, uh, about Jesus and the life we're to have in him and the redemption that Jesus offers. So this isn't sarcasm. Uh, he's saying, have you not seen the, the true reality of what is in the scriptures, of what you know? Uh, in verse 11, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended uh, to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. I'm talking about Nicodemus' mind frying right here. <laughs> now he's talking about him being the Son of Man. Uh, uh, sorry, I lost my spot. Uh, in verse 14, um, he says, as, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And here's where we begin some of our favorite, most quotable verses, right? It says uh, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And you can continue to read, but um, 
Have you ever read, I know we quote 15, 16, and 17 all the time, but have you ever read 14? It says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. This is a story I want to look at this morning. So he compares himself, right? Right before he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He talks to Nicodemus about about him being the son, about him coming down. He says, no one has ascended to heaven but the son who came down, right? So he's talking about this, he's talking about this life that he is going to live, this sacrificial life that he's going to live, this sacrifice he's going to make, the fact that he is the son of God. And he compares it to this story in the Old Testament. He says, just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, right? So the son of man must be lifted up. So is there something here? Uh, I, yeah, there's something here. And I, I, we read quickly past that because we're like serpent wilderness. I don't want to touch that. But John 3.16, you know, <laughs> you know, so uh, I want to look at the serpent in the wilderness this morning because I, I think uh, I think it is going to uh, be rich in your understanding of the context of 3.16. So Jesus loves the scriptures and he quotes them all the time. If Jesus quotes the scriptures, uh, you need to go read what he's quoting. It and if you don't understand it, keep reading it. Keep reading it, keep reading it because you, you will understand uh, much better the red letters if you understand the context of the red letters. And if Jesus speaks about a, like this story, this is gonna give you a brilliant picture of what he's actually talking about in these verses that we love to, to quote. So go to Numbers. We're gonna read this story. Jesus isn't making this up. We're gonna read what he's, what he's talking about. So, uh, no surprise, we're going to catch the children of Israel in rebellion. Uh, this kind of seems to be the theme of most of the Old Testament uh, and the theme of much of our lives, but um, we're going to find them in rebellion. We're just going to read a few, a few verses, uh, but I want, I want you to see what happens here. So, uh, I'm sorry? Uh, Numbers 21. Did I know? I'm sorry. Like, we're going to read the whole book. Numbers 21. And let's start in, uh, let's see, we'll start in verse 4. You guys there? Everybody ready? All right, it says, Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. Well, uh, again, this is no surprise. They are are wandering in the desert, uh, and they become discouraged. And it says in verse 5, the people spoke out against God and against Moses. Listen to this statement, guys. Listen to what they say. Why have you brought us here? Uh, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and there is no water and our soul loathes this worthless bread. What is this worthless bread? This is the very bread that God has provided for to sustain his people. This is the bread of heaven, right, who Jesus will compare himself to. He's already speaking of the Messiah, and we, we can go into that in a different, at a different time, but they're tired of it. They're tired of God's provision because they're in a hard place, right? And they're, in other places, they don't necessarily do it here, uh, I don't believe, but they ask, actually, in other places, actually ask to go back to Egypt. Right? Do what? Yeah, they, yeah, they, they say, man, this, this thing that we've been rescued from is so, is so difficult. We want to go back in other places. So uh, they get extremely discouraged. And, uh, and listen, to, listen to the Lord's reaction. I'm not going to sugarcoat this at all, but it says in verse 6, So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. 
Pray to the Lord that he take away these serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, listen to this, uh, what the Lord tells him. Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. And then it says, now the children of Israel moved on and camped. And that's as brief of a story there as we get. It's a strange story. They sin and rebel. The Lord sends these, uh, these fiery, uh, fiery serpents uh, due to sin. And what does sin always cause? The result of sin is always death. There, that's a principle that's established in the beginning. The result of sin is always death. Adam and Eve sin, and what happens? Immediately, they die. Why do we have to be born again? Because we are dead people. Dead people need what? Life, right? So the result of sin, the scriptures say it in Romans, it says the wages of sin is death. We know, we know this scripture well, but it, it is always, always, always with sin. Death is always with sin. And, uh, and as a result here, I, I can't explain all this to you. I'm not going to try to rationalize it, but death occurs. People are dying in droves because of their, uh, because of their sin and because of their rebellion. And they ask for, uh, they ask for a saving from this, this uh, experience, right? There's, there's serpents around and they're being bitten and dying. And they say, Moses, you got to change this. We recognize our sin and we need to repent before you. We're sorry uh, before you and the Lord. Will you pray that he might give us a solution? And here's the solution that God gives to this sin-producing death. He says, Moses, I want you to make a fiery serpent, and I want you to set it on a pole, all right? And when you set it on a pole, you tell the people that anyone who looks on the serpent will live. And that's kind of the closing of the story. Moses makes this serpent. He, he, he sets this bronze serpent on a pole. Uh, and, and that's kind of all we read about it. But Jesus comes over here in John chapter 3, and he quotes, this, he quotes this verse, he quotes this story in talking about him being lifted up, right? So immediately we know there's a comparison being made. He says, as the serpent was put on the pole, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So this kind of fries our brain because we're going, okay, so Jesus, now you've compared yourself to this serpent on a pole. Well, what... This is the part that's always hard. Why a serpent? What is a serpent? What, what do you know about the serpent, the archetype of a, of a serpent? Anybody? English class archetype? No? What's a serpent? You said it. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Okay. What does it represent? That's good. Deception. How about something with a capital E? evil, right? I mean, this is, the, this is the very picture from the very beginning. This is the picture of evil. This is the curse that God even put on Satan. Remember he says you're going to crawl on your belly, right? This is the, this is the curse um, of, the, of the scriptures on Satan. And, and immediately from the very beginning, we have this picture of evil in a serpent. So you're telling me that people were saved by looking to evil? You're telling me that, that God sets up this picture where if you'll just, if you'll just put your eyes on, on a snake, you'll be saved? Okay, but there's got to be something else here. 
There's got to be something else here that helps us because a snake on a pole right now is giving us a little trouble, right? Why would he say, look on a serpent on a pole? What is important about that serpent? What did Moses make the serpent out of? Out of bronze. This is the, this is the key element to this whole story. I want, we're going to talk about bronze in just a minute. I want you to watch this, uh, this video about how bronze is made, okay? So are we ready to roll? So this guy makes, uh, makes bronze there to cover his uh, little address plate. But did you see the process of bronze? What, what happens? How do you get bronze? Super. Anybody think that fire was hot? Anybody like worried about that man's feet when he was pouring that thing? <laughs> that extreme, extreme fire and heat is how bronze was created. Different metals combined. He showed you the combination of different metals, right? all combined, melted down, and lit on fire. What does fire represent in the scriptures? What do we always talk about when we talk about fire? The fire of, it starts with a J, hell, it's good. J, judgment. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> good fire right fire in the scriptures is always talking about it's always speaking of of judgment and so this picture here is this is cool 
So this picture here of bronze, bronze is created by, through the process of judgment. It's refined through fire, right? We just, we just saw it. Bronze is, uh, is unique in this way. There's a tremendous amount of heat that is applied to bronze. So this bronze speaks of judgment. So why is the snake bronze? Now we've got this picture. Come on, let's go. We got pictures here. So this is fun. The Lord is speaking through pictures. He does this all through the Old Testament to tell about his son. We've got evil, but we've got evil what? In bronze, meaning evil judged. Anybody? You guys pick this up? It's not insignificant that it's bronze. He didn't just put a serpent on a pole. It's a strange picture if he puts a serpent on a pole and there's nothing else to it, right? And God's, we're going, what in the world? Is this a worship of, of evil, right? It's kind of, is a strange thing. But Jesus says, just as this bronze serpent was lifted up, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, right? This bronze serpent is a picture of the judgment of sin and evil. And so Jesus says, in this same way, so I must be lifted up. It's no, it's no accident that the Son of Man was lifted up on a pole. He was lifted up on a tree. So this serpent was lifted up on a tree. Jesus was lifted up on a tree in the judgment of evil. His death and resurrection, not, not anything else, but the death and resurrection of Jesus is the thing that is condemning uh, Satan to hell. It is the very thing that judges evil and sin and death. It's why we can be free from it because it's been judged and dealt with. It's why Jesus said at the, on the cross, what, did he, what were his last words on the cross? It's finished. What's finished? What's finished? Yeah, he's, he's finished the work that he was sent here to do. He has made atonement for sin. He has become the great, he is the great high priest and has been uh, in this act, has become the spotless sacrificial lamb lifted up on a tree that sin and death might be judged. And what did he say to the people that they must do in order to be healed from this wound? He says, look upon this judged evil and you'll live. Yeah, where, where uh, in verse 8, yeah. uh, make a fire, set it on pole, it should be everyone who is bitten. How many of us are bitten by evil? That's a good point. We'll stop there. How many, how many of us have been bit by evil? All of us, friends, the answer is everyone. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Right? All of us need the atonement for the death that, the, that evil and sin create, right? And he says, in order, those who have been bitten, that you look upon this bronze serpent and you are healed. Well, why does he say, uh, why does he say look on it? Well, before we go there, I want to actually, I've got a note here that I, I do want to talk about. Bronze, this isn't the only place that bronze is used. Bronze is used other places in scripture. Uh, I want you to see this. Go to Exodus uh, 39. I just love the Old Testament. I just understand the New Testament so much better when I read the Old. Uh, so go to Exodus 39. Um, and let's start in verse 33. It says, And they brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent and all its furnishings. So uh, in the wilderness, God, God desires to tabernacle, to be with his people. And so he sets up... Uh, 
this, this tent, this meeting place. It's to be mobile, uh, but he sets it up so that he can meet with his people so that they can atone for sin. Uh, the, the, the tabernacle is a fascinating study. We're going to see a piece of it here, a very small piece. But, uh, so it's going to describe some of the things in the tabernacle. So they brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent and all its furnishings, its clasps, its boards, its bars, its pillars, and its sockets. The covering of ram skins dyed red, the covering of badger skins, and the veil of the covering. The Ark of the Testimony. All right, what is this? What's the Ark of the Testimony? What's another? Yeah, presence, right? Ark of the Testimony with its poles and the mercy seat. Uh, the table, all its utensils, and the showbread. The pure gold lamp stands with its lamps, the lamps set in order, all its utensils, and the oil for light. The gold altar, the anointing oil, and the sweet incense. The screen for the tabernacle door, the bronze altar. It's great of bronze, it's poles and all its utensils, the laver with its base, uh, and it goes on. But what is bronze here? Say that, somebody? The altar. The altar is bronze, right? That's what he's created uh, as bronze. Uh, this is a cool picture, and again, we'll, I want to teach the tabernacle at some point, but this is long and in-depth, and, but we'll do it. Um, but there is nothing... Inside, so the way it would work is uh, this big tent, and there's this process that you would go through in order to, as as you approached the most holy place, which was the uh, the ark, right? And above the ark sat two cherubim, and the the uh, the angels. They they are a picture of worshipers, and it's in between these two worshipers where. Uh, the, the presence would reside, right? The presence of God would, would be there. And uh, so the priest would have to go through this process in order to go into where the presence was. And they only actually went in once a year, but they would go in and make, uh, and make sacrifice, make atonement for sin. But they had to cleanse themselves before they could go into this holy place. Because if sin came in, it would immediately be consumed by the glory and the goodness of God, right? And Sin cannot be in that place where his glory and goodness is. It gets consumed. So they would have to purify themselves that they might go in and not die. And I've told you many times, they go in with a rope tied around them in case they mess up, their friends can pull them out. Otherwise, they would, no one else could go in. Uh, and so they would go through this process. They would wash their hands. They would, have, they would wear uh, pure white uh, clothing. They would sprinkle blood. They would sacrifice. Uh, we'll go into it more in depth, but they would come and they would make sacrifice right outside the tent. So there's this screen door right outside the tent. There's this big brazen altar where they would make sacrifice and atonement. They would, they would slaughter. This is where they would slaughter the animals, where they would coat themselves uh, with blood and purify before they would go in. Okay, That altar where sacrifice was made was bronze. Is speaking uh, this this sacrifice needed for judgment to be absorbed on behalf of these uh, these priests? But once they went into the uh, once they passed the screen and went into the holy of holies, there's no more bronze there. There's not anything within the within the inner. Uh, piece of the tabernacle that's bronze. Only the pieces outside the, uh, that we just listed here, these are the only things that are bronze. Everything else inside is gold. Why? Because gold speaks of holiness. It's this kingly thing, right? And, and, and it is, it is a, it's completely pure uh, and, and speaks of holiness and majesty. Why is there no bronze in the veil? It's just cool. That's a side note. Why is there no bronze within the, uh, why is it only gold? That's right, because judgment has occurred. 
Judgment has occurred. Purification has been made. And now they go in and there's no longer a need for judgment. This is a beautiful picture of what of what happens to the believer. See, Jesus dies on the cross. We're going to look at this a little more. We look upon the one who was pierced, right? It's the scriptures. Salvation occurs and we get to go in. We don't go in to make more sacrifice. We don't go, we don't go in that there might be more judgment. We go in and enjoy the purity of the presence of God, which is holy and good, right? It's all gold. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that a beautiful picture of the believer? We need not go in and worry about sacrifice. The sacrifice has been made and is done. The ultimate and perfect sacrifice has been made and done. There's no place for sacrifice in the presence. That's why I tell you so much, you've got to die. You've got to die because all of you, in order to, in order to enter into the presence of God to, to have salvation in Jesus, it requires our death. It requires this judgment of the old man, crucified with him that we might live. But once we live, we get to go in unhindered and enjoy the very presence of Almighty God. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And so Jesus says, so must I be lifted up. And it's important that we note here, what did they have to do in order to be healed? What did they have to do? They just had to look at it. Nothing else was required. Is that a strange thing? <laughs> Doggone technology, you can check me while you're... <laughs> Confessions of an honest man. Oh, that's cool. It's a cool note. Is he simply looking at it, or wouldn't there be like a, like a necessity of like faith and understanding why we want to say you? Like, like I'd be like, okay, I'm good. But if you if you understand the significance of it and the faith that if I look at this, this is saving, then there's more of a connection. That's good. Yeah. So that's good. So what did it require? I mean, let's let's take it apart then. What did it require? Uh, in order for healing. He says that, as Brennan just said, uh, is, is, is it just looking at it? And this is a hard thing, you know, because, we, oh, you've got that on Google? You want to just, I'll switch you. That is neither the serpent nor looking at it, but the invisible power of God heals the people. So neither the cross of Christ nor his merely being crucified, but the pardon he has bought by his blood communicated by the powerful That's right. That's right. Yeah, to, to look on the serpent, what, what must you have to be convinced of? Yeah, it's going to save me. There would be no other reason. And only, and only those who realize the reality of their death would look on the thing that would heal them, right? Only those who know that if I don't look upon the one who was pierced, if I don't look upon this judgment of sin, if I don't look upon the cross and with, with, with full faith and assurance that it is the thing which will save me, then, I'm, then there's no reason to look. 
Because seriously, think about it. It's a silly thing. It's a bronze snake on a pole, right? Think about that. That's not a normal, average, everyday thing. And can you imagine the silliness of that? Like I get bit by a snake and seriously, you want me to look at the pole? If I don't have full conviction that it is the thing that will cleanse me and save me from the thing that is in me that will kill me, then I'm not going to look at it. See, that's the other part about this. What is it about a snake's bite that kills us? It's the venom. It's that which is in us post-bite. It's that which is in your blood and in your veins that kill. It becomes, that venom becomes your nature. It becomes a part of your blood, right? And it is what kills you. It's what, in, what was in them that was going to kill them unless they looked upon that was, which was out of them for salvation. Very, very, very simple explanation of this is in Ephesians chapter two. Anybody know what Ephesians chapter two, verse eight says? Bible drill. Somebody read Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. So what work was done on behalf of the Israelites for salvation? It was this act of faith. They did nothing to heal themselves but look upon that which was provided for their healing. This is a... This is a to me, one of the most clear pictures of the reality that there is absolutely no way in which you and I can earn our salvation. There is no way in which you and I can come up with the remedy which will heal us from the contaminating venom of sin and death which is in us. It is only, it is only by looking upon the sacrifice that was given. Jesus says it very simply. There is a, there is a belief that takes place for salvation and repentance. There's the only two things that are ever prescribed for salvation in the scriptures. We've made it a lot of different things. I want to tell you, it's those two things. There's belief and repentance. Repentance is turning from, it's like, it, it means, uh, in the Greek, it means like to change your mind. You have to walk away from the old nature. You have to know that what is in me will kill me, so I'm going to change my mind. This is repentance, right? Repentance with faith looks upon the cross and believes that what which was given is enough for my salvation, right? And there's, there's, there is nothing else. There is no other way in which you and I can be healed but through the work of the cross. So Jesus makes this parallel and he says, just as this serpent, this bronze serpent was lifted up on a pole, so will I be. And Jesus, not many days after that, was lifted up on a tree as the judgment of sin and death that when you and I would behold and look upon the glory and the wonder and the beauty of the saving cross, we might be saved. And I don't mean might as in maybe, but that we would be saved. And it is that very work on the cross. There's a lot of discussion uh, based on a few passages, a lot of confusion on whether or not that work was enough well, over and over in, in Hebrews uh, chapter 6, he says, the sacrifice is not going to happen again. The what happened on the tree, what happened on the cross is never going to happen again. It was done once and for all. So it is absolutely a necessity that you and I know and believe that that work that was done by Jesus on the cross is enough to save me eternally. Because if it's not, then I've got to put him back on the tree again 
and again and again and again, and he's not going back. He was lifted up. Sin was judged. It is finished. He now sits at the right hand of the Father making intercession for you and for me, and our life is now held in the grace and mercy and work of the perfect, spotless Lamb who was lifted up that death that was in us that would kill us would be judged and we would have life, right? Those who looked upon it would live. It's a beautiful picture of salvation. And then he goes on in John chapter three. Now, now read these words. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, anybody know he was killed in the wilderness? Even so must the son of man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him, Brendan, this is the, the explanation of what he's talking about. He's elaborating on looking upon the snake. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So just to add a little clarification on it, when he says that he has been condemned, uh, or he does not believe is condemned already, uh, why are they condemned already? Was, had those people who had been bit by the snake, had they not believed in the sacrifice, what would have happened? They would have died simply out of their ignorance and foolishness for what had been provided for their very ailment. But to not believe, it says they were condemned already. Why? Because sin was already in them. Because death was already taking place in their, in their bodies. They were decaying, right, in, in, that, in that process. He says they're already condemned. There's already condemnation. Why? Because there's already death present. So those who do not believe, it's not like at that point that I don't believe that death becomes a reality. Death is already a reality. There's already condemnation on you and your life when sin and death reign in your mortal bodies, right? Does that make sense? 